Okay. All right. I'm all set up. Everything's ready to go. Do you feel... Are you ready to go on your end, Dan? I am as ready as can be. We've got... uh, So we've got Chris tomorrow uh, at 2.30 Eastern, uh, 1.30 my time. Let's plan on getting together at like... Uh, one thirty your time, twelve thirty yep. central for uh, just kind of getting getting things together. Okay, that works. Uh, nope, that's uh, it's, that works just fine. Let's go. Ready? Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, let me. Uh, I'll do. I'll do a countdown for sync. Uh, three, two. Th- what? Okay, Dan. I heard something on your end. Can you redo that? There's uh, there was something there. Yeah, I thought. I thought I heard it too. I'm running my I'm running my audio through a mixer now, but I I didn't touch it or anything. All right, all right. Um, okay. Uh, here we go. Three, two. I, it, are you sure that's not on your end? You you've you've changed your mic setup. I everything's. I mean everything's. So, I mean I don't I don't think so. And I'm, I'm not noticing anything on the. Oh my God! What was that? Hello. 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 You may be wondering who I am. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who, yeah. Who, I'm definitely totally wondering. Wh- who are you? I am the ghost of elections past. Look upon me and beware, podcasters. Beware. I was Nixon's sweaty lip. I was the hanging chad. I was a binder full of women. I was the Russia Sarah Palin could see from her house. Even though she didn't actually say that, that was Tina Fey on Saturday Night Live, but who's gonna argue with the culture? That... that was you? That was me. And I have come to tell you that you will be visited by three debates. The first shall come tonight at the stroke of nine Eastern for maximum viewing across the country. There shall be two upon a stage. One shall be orange and one shall be pantsuited. No hints as to which is which. It shall go on for 90 minutes, but feel much longer. Oh, God, no. It shall go on for 90 minutes, which is more than adequate to determine the fate of Western civilization. Also, it shall be broadcast in VR, and lo, there shall be much live tweeting. Uh, um, well, tell us, ghost, um... Are things going to be okay? Will things be okay? I'm a f***ing ghost. A horrific spirit laden with portents and warnings. What do you think? You think this is going to go well when a ghost shows up to warn you of what's going to happen? Do ghosts usually come bearing good news? Oh, that's, he has a point. That's fair. Yeah. That's, that's fair. Yeah. Oh, hello. I'm the ghost of breakfast yet to come. It's going to be croissants and clotted cream. Huzzah! Does that happen a lot? 
I don't think so. Hear the chains? Does that sound like a happy sound? Uh, ghost, must we do this? Look, you decided to do a political podcast, and now you have to watch the f***ing debates. Those are the rules. You signed up for it. We all have to watch the f***ing debates. You think I want this? No one wants this. This is not something that anybody wanted to do. This is not like, oh, I don't know what I want to do this fall. See the fate of the Western world argued out on reality TV. Sounds great. Let's do that. But you will watch and you will learn. Maybe. Or something. It's going to happen. So just accept it. Oh, yeah? Says who? Coming to you straight from the cyber, it's a post-debate edition of Says Who, the podcast that isn't a podcast. It's a coping strategy. I'm Dan Sinker. And I'm Maureen Johnson, and we're all enjoying a big exhale. <sighs> exhale. After the debate's like, <gasps> let it all out from the belly. That's right. I swear to God, Maureen, the first 45 minutes of that debate, I thought I was dying. Like, the room was spinning. I had friends texting me to see if I was okay. It was, it was really something. You were very upset last week when we talked about the prospect of this debate. You were upset, and frankly, the ghost that came by yesterday seemed pretty upset too, which was disturbing. Wait, I kind of, I kind of thought maybe I'd imagine that ghost. Like maybe that was just a lunch didn't sit well. No, no. No, no, no. That you're not imagining any of this, Stan. Well, how do you how do you feel now? That's the question. Uh, I feel, you know, I feel pretty okay. The debate was significantly less terrible than I expected, and uh, this morning I took my dog on a walk, and I did not get shot on the streets of Chicago, which Trump said was an impossibility. So I cheated death. That's got to be a good sign, right? I think you can put that one in the positive column. And we're going to be getting to the actual substance of the debate in a minute with our guest, and that's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. But before we talk to Chris, I just want to spend a moment with our audience. Hi, everybody. Everybody, we need to talk about our feelings. Because, like, for example, me, before the debate yesterday, I took a few Tums and I drank a can of ginger ale to help with my nausea. And then right before it started, just like a couple minutes before, I felt this lurch in my stomach, like I was getting on a roller coaster. And let me tell you something, Dan, I hate roller coasters. I mean, I like roller coasters, and I felt the exact same way. I mean, it could be because I eat my feelings, and so it's kind of a minor miracle that there was not a cleanup in my basement last night. But uh, but yeah, I felt just as... I felt completely horrible. Dan, where I grew up, we had some really insecure theme parks. People kept dying in them. I lived near one called Action Park, which was also known as Class Action Park and Traction Park because of the sheer number of injuries and fatalities that came out of there. 
One of their most famous innovations was an enclosed water tube slide with a loop at the very end at the bottom, and people would go down this thing, and they would hit the loop at speed, and they'd be sent careening into the top of the loop where they would, best case scenario, break their nose, or they'd be knocked out, and then they would kind of get stuck or fall unconscious out of the bottom of the slide. Uh, That seems like something that should have got caught in design. Yeah. Well, actually, they had a policy of they would make up these rides and they would give the people that worked at the park a hundred bucks to test them to see if they were safe or fun. Usually fun and not safe. Uh, That wasn't even the worst ride. They had a fake toboggan run, uh, which was made of concrete. Uh, People would get just would go down and the sleds would go out from underneath them and they would go down these raw concrete tubes and get their bodies cut up. That was pretty bad. Most of the fatalities were in the wave pool. Parks all around us when I was growing up, roller coasters broke down and people had to climb off of them and they caught fire or people went flying off of them. And I'm just saying I'm not okay with roller coasters, Dan. I'm, I got suckered onto going onto Space Mountain down in Disney World not that long ago. And some of you may be very fortunate and maybe you've never experienced an anxiety attack. If you want to know what one is like, go on Space Mountain because that is an anxiety attack in the form of a ride. You go in and it's dark and it's horrific and things kind of spring out of nowhere and don't make any sense and you shake all over and you can't see where you are so you have no idea when it's going to end. And whatever happens to me now, I say, well, at least I'm not on Space Mountain. Most of which I blacked out. I know that they found me in the gift shop and I was clinging to a rack of key rings. I frankly, I trusted Disney World, and they uh, they f***ed me over. Is is this still about the election? Dan, I felt like I was getting back on Space Mountain, and I did not like it at all. But I feel I feel okay today. I slept last night. I slept like a baby. Well, okay, now hold on just a second, because I sleep next to a baby every night, and that is literally the world's worst metaphor. They sleep terribly. I would rather sleep in a Space Mountain roller coaster car or, like, try to set up a bed while being dropped continually into that pool on Splash Mountain or or being whipped in circles on Big Thunder. Man, Disney World really has a lot of mountains. Anyway, uh, every night when the baby wakes up, I say to my wife, this baby is adorable. But this thing that emerges at night, I'm not okay with it. Maureen, I'm not even joking. Every night is the worst night of my life. Dan, is this still uh, about the election? Because I'm not sure that we've... Uh, we may be straying from the, from the, uh, from the point and... Uh, hmm? I, Maureen, I think you... Do you, hmm? do you need a tissue or something? What are you talking about? You, you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of sniffing. It's a little, it's a little bit loud. Uh, I don't think so. No, it, I, I mean, I can definitely hear you sniffing. Mm, no. I think probably everyone listening can hear you sniffing. No, might be my mic. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, well, okay. I, you're sure you don't need a tissue? You don't need something? No, no. Okay. What are you okay. talking about? All right. Uh, okay, we're just going to keep going then. Uh, you know, uh, the thing is, this is... Everyone is stressed out, Maureen. You know, this this is a podcast about coping, right? And and yeah. the, the mood in America is stressed out, you know. I have not relaxed my shoulders since the debate last night. And 
They may never relax. I had to cram my headphones in in between my shoulder blades and my skull just to record this. You know, I I may never live my life with my shoulders not down past my ears anymore. You're talking about nightmare roller coasters and have apparently gotten a case of the sniffs and I may never sleep because at night my baby turns into a sleep eating monster. And I think it's not just us. I don't know why you keep saying this thing about sniffs, but, you know, I my timeline was full of people who were hiding and um, and they were in like pillow forts and they, and they were stress eating. And dr- I don't drink personally, so I couldn't drink or anything. But I think I handled my stress pretty well, honestly. I'm not totally sure that's true, but I am definitely really stressed out again. So I'm going to go eat an entire pie. And then let's get on with the show. So last week, when we talked to Josh Katz from The New York Times about polling, he said this week's debate was one of those moments, like the conventions before it, that could really have an impact on polls. But if you're following the polls like I've been, you've actually spent most of this week hiding under furniture because even though I'm trying to trust in the model like we learned last week, they are not looking so hot. Right. And it's still too early to tell what type of an impact this debate is going to have on the race. And let's face it, we are not the people to go there, even if we could. So we wanted to get someone in who is watching the race closely and can give us a better sense of what this week's debate meant and where we go from here. Chris Hayes hosts All In with Chris Hayes weekdays at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. He's also the author of the book Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy, and the forthcoming A Colony and a Nation, out next spring from W.W. Norton. Chris, hello, and thank you for being here. And I also just want you to know that in this house, you have dinner with us every night. You don't eat much, but you make wonderful conversation. Uh, My dog loves you. I actually, I've sent a tweet in which my dog gets up to the television to say hello to you. And I still relish the moment from about a week ago when you had Sam Nunberg on the day of the birther press conference and you looked done. Like, you looked finished, like you were going to go to the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and I was feeling that a little bit because the, the I, I think a lot of people have that feeling of just, you know, that we had reached the limits of the allowable amount of gaslighting and, you know, poor Jedi mind trick and retconning of uh, (laughs) of things that actually have happened in the world. Um, And and so, yes, I was was at my limit that day. His face was starting to sort of compress like a Kermit the Frog on one side, and he had this kind of green sweat coming down. It was it was amazing. It was like watching a person melt on live television under the force of your questioning. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've seen in 2016. Thank you for that moment. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Just before we even ask you about what you thought about the elect- uh, the debate last night, just in general, because you have to do this every single night, and we appreciate it because I-, I just sit and watch. But are you, um, are you okay? <laughs> Uh, I'm not. I mean, I, 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 am I okay? Of course I'm okay. Is the, is this getting to me? Yes. I mean, my cortisol levels are... It's okay not to be okay. This is a safe space. Yeah. I mean, my cortisol levels are high. Um, I, yeah, I feel a great deal of, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot at stake and I think that I, it's important that I and 
other people in my field play a, a constructive uh, role in helping Americans make a choice about who the next president will be. And, and I definitely feel, um, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. I feel anxious a lot. And I find the weight of what is sort of unfolding before us uh, is sort of constantly pressing on me right now. So, yeah, it's it's not um, it's not like I do the job and then I'm like, up oh, another day at the office and, you know, punch out and sort of go home and, um, you know, not think about it. It's sort of on my mind the whole time. Do you have like a can of Pringles in your in your desk or anything that you can just sort of I'm trying. I'm actually looking at some some really uh, delicious, uh, sweet, sugar free icebreakers, ice cube gum that I've actually been like Ooh. using instead of stress eating. But there's definitely I've definitely been chewing through a lot of that. <laughs> So you're you're certainly among friends on the anxiety tip. Uh, we were just talking about how truly near death we felt last night when we were watching the debate. And we were, I was sitting comfortably next to my family in my basement. You were actually in Hofstra University. And you've been watching the fallout since. And where do you think this debate leaves us? Look, I think she clearly won the debate. I think for all of the reasons that she would, um, for all the reasons that voters tend to in polls say that she is more prepared and and ready to be president than he is, um, she displayed that last night. Um, and, you know, I think he, all of his worst personality traits, uh, which are, uh, you know, legion, were were on display, and I think that it if you were choosing of who you if you were had to make the choice of who you want to be this morning, obviously you want to be Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump. That said, my feeling about this race from the very beginning, and even from when he wrapped up the nomination, you know, there's a lot of talk about this was going to be a Goldwater blowout, a '64 blowout, or a Reagan Mondale blowout in '84. Um, and I never thought that would be the case. I always thought it was going to be a very close and hard fought race. And the reason are the fundamentals and the fundamentals are still the fundamentals, even the day after a debate. So this probably helps Hillary Clinton. But the fact of the matter is that, um, two, two things are happening. The biggest thing that's happened over the course of the last month is Republicans have come home in poll after poll in the internals cross tabs, as we call them, you're seeing, uh, Donald Trump now getting 90% of Republican support. So he has solidified the base of the Republican Party. And, and, and you know, you need look no further than, than Mr. Proud, Righteous, Sanctimonious Ted Cruz, never Trumper, <laughs> vote your conscience, coming around to, uh, you know, coming around to endorsing Trump as a kind of stand-in for what's been happening to Republican voters writ large. The nature of American polarization is such that Either person nominated by either of these major parties starts with a floor of about 40%. And, you know, 40, 42, 43, somewhere in that range. So if you get nominated by a major party, you have a good chance of being president of the United States. Um, a really good chance. <laughs> so that was always going to be the case with Trump. Uh, you know, the, the polarization is is baked in. It's part of how the system works. And, and so it's, you know, those fundamentals pertain the they pertain the day after as much as they did the day before. With the nature of, because it is so polarizing, and for example, on Twitter this morning, I sort of logged in to see what the main, you know, what what the amazing day after breakdown was. And of course, the top trending topic was Trump won, which was not shocking. But 
that's a pretty, I feel like that's pretty funny. But again, we see what we want to see. And, you know, we say, you know, we, how much of last night do you think was a see what you want to see? Or do you think we can, I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me, but I'm trying to figure out where the, I I think, uh, yeah, I think there are a bunch of moments that were, that were, I, I think there's a bunch of moments that were really beyond see what you want to see. I mean, I think the, the, the long exchange on birther stuff, um, was bad and it was bad for him partly because of what it means for I think mobilizing uh mobilizing the democratic base and also reaffirming in the minds of people uh who are maybe loosely attached or or don't love Hillary Clinton but think that he's a a sort of a, a bigot blowhard megalomaniacal intemperate jerk uh th- all of that was confirmed i think the taxes stuff really hurt him because he looked um he looked like he was hiding something and he looked squirrely and also defensive, I think. Um, and then I think a lot of the, 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 the second half of the debate, it, you know, the, his answer on cyber or on nuclear stuff was just so, you know, it was just word noodles um, spooling around each other uh, with no sort of discernible beginning or end or, or guiding logic. And I think that doesn't help. I mean, so I, I don't think... You know, the question is how long-lasting the effect is. I think the, there will be some effect. Um, but again, 2012, right, Romney Romney delivered a very strong performance, and Barack Obama did not in that first debate, and we saw the, the race kind of snap back to its fundamentals. Now, the difference there was that the fundamentals probably favored Barack Obama then, and Barack Obama went in leading, uh, which was not the case uh, for, for Donald Trump. And the sort of analogs in history people have been pointing to were both 76 and 1980 when the challenger had to show that they could be on the same stage. That's Carter against Ford and then Reagan then against Carter and and kind of clear this bar. And I think he did a terrible job of, of clearing that bar last night. And I think that will do permanent and lasting damage. Do you think he's going to be back? Do you think he's going to, is he even going to do the next two? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was sort of a John Podesta troll last night that they were worried he wouldn't do the next two, but you know, I, he's certainly not going to. I don't think he's going to run away after being beaten. Um, I do point. think that he's going to. Who am I thinking we're talking about here? Right. I mean, I do think the I do think the lesson that they're going to draw is that he was not he was not nasty and insulting enough, uh, which I think is probably the wrong lesson to draw for them. Um, but you could already see them. I mean, they're basically saying that today. Both Kelly and Conway, who's his ostensible campaign manager, although really sort of a more of a television surrogate, um, that. You know, it, they, they they think, oh, we were we didn't take the gloves off. We didn't we weren't, you know, brutal on her enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think they they'll they'll be back. And, and today, I mean, what's amazing about today's news cycle, whenever you're listening to this, we're, we're speaking the morning after the debate. Um, you know, that, that there's this woman, this former Miss Universe um, who, you know, he was just horrible to because she gained weight after she became Miss Universe and there's you know video of him bringing reporters in to videotape her working out and he called her an eating machine uh, to Howard Stern and he called her Miss Piggy to her face and Hillary Clinton sprang this trap last night clearly the whole thing had been prepped right at about the 84th minute she gets in the story of this woman Uh, she then then like right after the debate the, there's a video, a very slickly produced uh, t- two-minute video <laughs> of her telling her story, and then today there's a phone call, and then Trump is now talking about it. So it, it was like, 
you know, it was like they they ran the Dreg Sergeant said they like called the same play. They reran the Kazir Khan play, and he just you know they they're getting the same result. Um, so that also I think just re- it reaffirms things that people don't like about Donald Trump anyway. Um, the worst moments for him in this campaign, uh, the two worst moments have been moments when he was cruelly and in a bigoted fashion going after basically random people. Judge Curiel, the judge who's presiding over the Trump University fraud case in uh, a district court in, in Southern California, and then Kazir Khan. And those are the two moments where you really saw his polling hemorrhage because it brought, you know, I don't, there's a lot of reasons I think people find that, you know, unbecoming. But they then set the trap for a third one. And so far, as of this morning, he's like walked right into it. It was kind of amazing to, it was like, watching a comedy movie where just he just keep, kind of keeps falling over the same things again and again. And they made such a big deal about how he hadn't prepared. And I was listening to an interview with Tony Schwartz, who was the co-author or the author of The Art of the Deal. And apparently he's been coaching the Clinton campaign and said, look, this guy can't prepare. He can't sit still for more than 15 minutes. So do you think that there's any chance that cause, that he might go back and actually take his Adderall or whatever he needs to take and sit still and and learn some stuff? Or do you think that he's just, or are we going to see something even more freewheeling? I, I don't think people change a whole lot at the age of 70. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, like, I don't think you're going to, like, there is a, there is a lifetime of discipline that one habituates oneself to in pursuit of whatever craft or profession or labor you do where you understand that it requires sustained attention. This is something he clearly has never possessed and is not going to suddenly uh, possess. I can imagine him studying more or, or boning up more, but I just it doesn't seem to be in his nature to do the kind of prep work necessary, which, by the way, <laughs> we're talking about this in the context of preparing for debate, but the guy wants to have the most important job in the world. Like, what do you think you do when you're president? I mean, the thought of trying to wing it as president of the United States, of not reading briefing papers, of not actually, um, you know, sustained attention and focus, of not gaming out things. I mean, it that to me is just such an insane idea. It's not, whatever you think about, whatever your politics are, um, I think we can all agree across the political spectrum, being president is a hard job that requ- requires hard work. And sustained attention and diligence and discipline and commitment to the task at hand, none of which the man seems to possess. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that that keeps me awake at night. And I'm awake at night a, a lot because I have a baby. But is I mean, it's it's quite clear at this point that when it's something that he doesn't want to do, he kind of tosses it off to whatever crony talked to him last. Right. And and. Like, how does that work when you're running a country? Also, you have to, he doesn't read. I mean, he all of his information seems to come from television. And and then when he does read, it's clearly a very small, constrained set of, um, you know, the most small, constrained set of, of sources that are mostly on the right. But I mean, again, a huge part of what the job of president is, is parsing a lot of incoming information through a variety of personnel channels that then make their way to you to make decisions about and probing and pushing against the arguments uh, that are presented to you. That's largely what a big part of the job is. And that just requires 
mental discipline. Uh, you know, it's terrifying to imagine a president attempting to do that without any mental discipline. And frankly, we sort of had a version of that in George W. Bush, um, you know, who sort of famously was not super curious. He was famously a delegator. He was famously decisive in decisions and didn't torture himself over them. Um, was not, you know, not really into kind of homework style study. And I think the record shows that that, you know, did not go very well. When you see, um, because I I was watching Kellyanne Conway come out last night and today, and she looks like someone who is professional, who is having her soul slowly sucked from her body on a minute by minute basis. Where's where's Steve Bannon right now? Do they have him in the dungeons? Um, Well, I don't, yeah, it's sort of unclear what role Bannon's playing. It's fascinating to me that, that the whole behind the scenes, you know, operation there, there was a McKay Coppins piece in BuzzFeed where, you know, he seemed to suggest um, his reporting that, that Ailes has played a much more prominent role in this than we, we realize. That would not surprise me at all. Um, there's, a, there's a way that um, Trump tends to suck the dignity out of and humiliate everyone that comes into contact with him, uh, you know, whether that's Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie or now Ted Cruz. Um, Paul Manafort, who's the now discarded campaign manager, like there's this this thing about him, this kind of vampiric quality where where he he the people around him, he sort of draws he draws their own reputational capital, respectability, dignity, sucks it out of them and 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 sort of temporarily uses it to make himself more prominent <laughs> and leaves them as sort of, you know, dried up husks and you, you've just seen him do it again and again and again and and yet he's polling even right now on national polls yes, because, right and yes because the fundamentals are the fundamentals because he's the second thing i was going to mention before he's getting 90 percent of republicans and he's opened up a 30 plus point lead among white men without college degrees, which is, or maybe it might even be more than that. It might be a 50 point lead. He's, he's opened up a lead among white men without college degrees that is basically twice Romney's. Now that's actually, when, you, when you're talking about white men without college degrees, you're, you're talking about a sliver of the electorate, right? So, you know, half the electorates, uh, you know, the electorates, what is it? It's, uh, you know, around 60% white. So 30% of that is white men and then without you know without college degrees you're you're getting down into the 17% of the electorate you know so it's not you know it's not the majority but he's running up enormous numbers against them that that are allowing him to um be competitive and you know you're seeing this interesting thing where states like Iowa that are very good for him a very white state with a lot of actually um a lot of white folks without college degrees. Wisconsin's actually, he's sort of overperforming there. He's underperforming in places like Arizona and Georgia, which are much more diverse. So you've got this, at one level, it's like there's sort of the story is the partisan, the sort of structural partisan thing that's happening. At the other level, there's a kind of doubling down on this kind of politics of, of, of white grievance, frustration, resentment is has been effective. And the question is like, you know, are, will the margins be high enough? One of the moments I did find hopeful about last night, and last night almost felt sometimes, and I hate to say this, but like a movie where you were actually seeing like a bad guy get what was coming to him, um, was the the thing that I just can't get over was all the sniffing. And then they asked him about it, and he's <laughs> like, I wasn't sniffing. Like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It's just someone who's like, I wasn't sniffing. 
Yeah, it is a very it's a weird tick of his that I've noticed before. It actually he did he would do it in the primary and he he actually does it as his stump speeches if you go back and listen to the sound of the stump speeches. It's it's how he sort of weirdly inhales to gather himself. Um but it was really prominent last night and I think partly because again the guy had never been in a one-on-one debate, and so there's just much more sustained focus um, on, you know, on one of the participants, and and so you you got that spotlighted. But I mean, at the level of of performance and presentation, I thought all of his performance and presentation was bizarre and and kind of um, manic, and then man simultaneously manic and bored, um, you know, thin-skinned, petulant. Uh, you know, it, it was it was not a good look for him. But again, like I'm not the target audience, right? Like I've already made up my mind about what I think this guy's personality features are. I come from that part of Pennsylvania, that sort of right ring around Philadelphia that they say is so important. And I really come from that kind of area where people very Republican, people kind of hate Hillary Clinton. I that's my background, and I've kind of keep checking in and calling and saying, "What are people saying?" And uniformly, because I'm getting this from my mom, I'm like, Mom, what are, what are your friends saying? She said, well, everyone says Trump is crazy. Even my, all my Republican friends are voting for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And a surprising lack of signs. We usually have signs all over the neighborhood. And there's one Trump sign. And she said there was one other sign, but it did say Hillary for prison. And I said, that, that counts as a Trump sign. But two <laughs> signs in our neighborhood. Seems like a kind of hopeful thing. Well, yeah, and I think, look, that's the, that is clearly the place that they feel, if you look at how they're targeting their pitch, I mean, clearly that is where they think the votes are for them. Uh, I think particularly, you know, white women and white women with college degrees um, are, you know, are, are going to, you know, they think break. I mean, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Mitt Romney won white women um, and... And Clinton is right now pulling up with white women. So that that is this the the, the kind of the, the Bucks County, the the sort of Cobb County in Georgia, which is the you know the, the sort of Collar County around Atlanta. These are places where that are that are Republican strongholds where, um, but are Republicans that I think find Trump uh, pretty uh, contemptible. Yep, Bucks County is where I'm from, and it's definitely, you're not seeing a lot of Trump activity. So that's my daily dose of sanity, which is to call down to Bucks County and say, yeah. how many, well, that's, how many got signs? A, you got a good, you've probably got a better finger on the pulse than I do, and that, that sense. Well, come down, we'll go I mean, down, I, we'll, we'll, we'll knock on doors. Yeah, well, I, I, I also think, you know, there's a thing that, that people in my business do, which is try to project how... Americans voters will perceive things which you know there's I think some people have a real ear for that and a talent for it and I think I have some ability to do that but you know you're better off just making first order judgments on what you actually perceive than second order judgments about how other people uh see things so you know we'll see from the polling what you know you know the polls about who won seem to show her you know show her winning decisively a question about when we first start getting the the public polling back um that whether those numbers move. And then the thing you also have to remember, David Plouffe said this in an interview yesterday, and this is true of the Obama campaign, both in 20, 2008 and definitely in 2012, which is they have much better data than the public polling because they have voter files that they're using modeling on. So they have their, they have their ones, you know, their, their, their definite voters, they have their swing voters, they have their definite Trump voters and they're 
they're constantly hitting doors, taking the data, putting into the system, and using that to real-time model off the voter file where they are. And, you know, one of the things I remember being told by people in the Obama campaign was after the first debate, when, when Obama's poll numbers collapsed a little bit, Romney pulled ahead for the first time in the polling average, and there was t- constant panic, they did not see their numbers really move. And they, were, they, were, they, they thought their numbers were the correct numbers. And in 2012... If you look at the Real Clear Politics polling average, in almost every state, Barack Obama outperformed by as much as five points, between sort of 0.7 and five points. So the, the, you know, the campaign, particularly the Clinton campaign, which has a very sophisticated ground operation, they've got pretty good data. Uh, so they will see internally how this is playing, probably even before we do in terms of public polling. So they're watching... Uh, a lot of a lot of stuff for how it all plays out over the next five weeks. Oh my God, five weeks. Um, and the Trump people maybe they're watching. Who knows what they do? What are you watching for over the next five weeks? You know, I mean, you're obviously you you are you are a journalist. Uh, you are privy to probably more information than the average person, but as you just said, less than than they may have internally. So, kind of, what are the markers that you're watching for, and kind of how are you how are you reading the how are you reading things over the next the next the last five weeks of the election? You know, I think the um, it's not like I'm looking at anything I think other people aren't. I'm looking at the real clear politics average, polling average, which I think is a good basic sort of rough and ready metric. Um, The you know, the 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 the, there's a path. So the the path for Hillary Clinton, uh, if she loses Ohio and Florida, she's I think Ohio really looks like she will lose it. at least as of now, so uh, which is not super surprising. Surprising given the the, the composition of the electorate there, Florida. I think she, uh, it, it's basically a, a, a coin toss. But even if she loses Ohio and Florida, right, she can still get to where she needs to be with Colorado, Vir- Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. The the worrying thing about state polls for, for the Clinton campaign the last few days is a very tight race in Colorado, which I think they thought they had locked away. They had gone off the air on. Their super PAC's now coming back in with air to go on the air. Virginia remains fairly comfortable. New Hampshire, a few point lead. Pennsylvania in the polling aggregate has been has held steady, although there was a, a, a poll showing essentially a dead heat. So those four states are they're the kind of firewall path to victory. Uh if if Donald Trump, for, for instance, were to win Pennsylvania, I think he will probably be the next president. Um, now that's the that's the sort of the, the the retreat line. There's then a whole bunch of other states that 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 are that are toss ups or competitive um, after that sort of inner group that 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 Clinton might also win. So there's Ohio and Florida, which are the two biggest prizes. There's North Carolina, which again. Um, there's interesting things happening in North Carolina because you have a, a series of polls that showed it like it was, it was trending in Trump's direction. It seems to have uh, evened out. You have the Senate candidate there, uh, Burr, who a lot of people d- didn't think would be in a dogfight, in an absolute dogfight. You've got the governor polling eight points behind, and you're starting to get early voting data, real actual votes roll in where you can you can do some modeling off that. So. That's a really interesting bellwether to look at because you're you're getting real time data. Um, I think if she were to win North Carolina, that that gives her. It's hard to see Donald Trump winning the presidency if he doesn't win North Carolina. Um, and then you've got states like uh, Nevada 
and Iowa. There was a little talk about Missouri, although I think it's going to be very hard for Hillary Clinton to win Missouri, ultimately. Um, but Nevada and Iowa also sort of come back into play. Um, and then then the thing to look at it, there are three states who's, who are almost certainly not going to go for, for Hillary Clinton, but whose margins will be really interesting and whose public polling margins are interesting, which are Texas, Arizona, and Georgia, which are three red states that are also have demographic compositions that make them uh, increasingly favorable to Democrats. Uh, and so that those are the three that I've been sort of keeping my eye on as well. Just as a kind of final question, and this is sort of taking it back one step to you and the media, the lying media, you know, and all those things that you guys do. Um, first of all, I do watch you every night. I just want to say thank you because it is this kind of dose of reassuring. It's very sane. It, it, it makes me feel less like I am losing my marbles every day. But <laughs> truly, truly. Whatever goals. But one of the things that I love is that uh, I know that you really do kind of hold people to account. Um, sometimes you look like you're about to start laughing, which is very funny. Um, you have some real punchable people on. How do you not just like reach over and, and kind of whack them, you know, just kind of, I mean, I know that's frowned upon, but how do you stop? Like, I what's the it's professional funny, like, trick? People, people ask me that a lot. And like, I don't, you know, one of the things I loved about becoming a journalist, um, when I, when I first started as actually in Chicago, freelancing for the Chicago reader, um, was one of the things I loved was the idea that I could just listen to people and hear what they had to say and try to understand how they think without having to debate them. And I think I've carried that through a lot, even on TV, where I think there's a there's an expectation, in some ways, a, a requirement to be more confrontational when people say things that aren't true. When you're a print reporter, if someone says something that's not true, you just put it in your notebook and then you either don't use it or you put it in and then fact check it. In real time, it's a much more difficult, complicated sort of touch and go process. You're up against a clock. You have, you're juggling a lot of logistics. You're trying to sort of make sure you have the facts on hand. You don't want to go down conversational uh, rabbit holes that you can't get out of, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately my general feeling is like, I kind of want to hear how people think. I don't want to allow them just to spew lies, but I also don't feel like I need to win exchanges. I think, you know, once you let up on winning exchanges it's it's remarkably freeing <laughs> um because i think you have some faith that ultimately the body of work speaks for itself and the body of work has some positive civic contribution to play and that every five second increment is not something that you have to demonstrate you know uh dominance and and, and you know there are certain people i think who could really serve to learn that lesson like the, one of the people running for president do you think that people, I guess, are nervous if they're not sure, like they know that they're going to get a Chris at MSNBC, but they're not sure if they're going to get you or Chris Matthews and that they're scared that Chris Matthews <laughs> is just going to yell at them in his Philadelphia accent? Well, but he's, you know, it's funny. Chris Chris has his own sort of technique that I think is super effective um, that 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 he has sort of honed over the years. And um, and he, you know, he will interrupt people when he, when he, when he needs to interrupt them. And, you know, those judgments are subjective judgments. Sometimes people don't like it, but... There's been a lot of moments in this campaign. I mean, there was the abortion exchange with Donald Trump. There was the birth certificate exchange with Rudy Giuliani, where it, it's an incredibly effective, effective method. Oh, he's great. He's the politest person from Philadelphia. I love it. The whole lineup <laughs> is great. Chris Hayes, thank you so much for joining us on Says Who. If you want to catch more of Chris, you can find him 
every weeknight at 8 p.m. on MSNBC hosting All In with who else? Chris Hayes. Good luck surviving the next five weeks, sir. Appreciate it, guys. That's it for this episode of Says Who. Please join us next week when we'll be muddling through this latest upsetting twists and turns in this election cycle. Wait, Maureen, I know we're wrapping up here, but how come we're not freaking out more that we got visited by an actual honest-to-God ghost? Like, I know you write about ghosts in your books, and you write about, like, super scary ghosts that kill people and stuff, but I did not know that ghosts were real. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're pretty scary. I don't know. But then the debate happened, and that was that was way scarier than some public radio host-sounding ghost, right? But, like, he had chains and a glowing incorporeal form, and he knew the future, and he talked about breakfast, and... Oh, my God, I ate breakfast this morning. Did I eat a ghost? No, I don't, I don't think your breakfast is haunted. And I don't, I don't think that's how that works. I don't think you eat ghosts. But, like, you're not... You're not actually sure, right? Look, I, like, I don't know. I mean, it's probably, it's, it's probably, it's probably fine. Anyway, I w- don't, just don't worry about it. Just one more thing not to worry. Just don't worry. Stop worrying. Look, if you, listeners, don't worry. If you have questions or if you just want to say hi and please send questions, please say hi. We're on Twitter at Says Who Podcast and Facebook at slash Says Who Podcast. We're just on the cyber at SaysWhoPodcast.com. Thanks to everyone who is spreading the word about Says Who. There were so many of you, and it is so awesome because this is a funny little thing that we decided to do, like, in a week and then started doing it, and you're actually listening. You are amazing, so thank you. If you are listening in iTunes, do leave a review because those actually help, like, people find out about the podcast and, and all of that kind of thing. You are awesome. Yeah, they help so much. When you do that, it kind of means that people know that we're here. So we're not just a weirdo in a basement and a closet talking into the dark. That So that would be great. Thank you. And thanks to Peter Sagal, who played the ghost of elections past. His show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, can be heard weekly on public radio stations everywhere. Our logo was designed by the all-powerful Darth. That's at Darth on Twitter. And our theme music comes courtesy of Ted Leo, who just announced a post-election tour. Dates are up at tedleotour.tumblr.com. Oh, post-election. Now that's a word. That's a word I like. It's coming. At least we think it's coming. From my basement in Chicago, I'm Dan Sinker. And from my closet in New York, I'm Maureen Johnson. So Maureen, I'm... I'm actually pretty curious about how they're going to pull off the vice presidential debate next week. I mean, Hmm? Clinton hasn't actually named a running mate. Hmm. Tim Kaine. I mean, it's a pretty non-traditional strategy. I have to hand it to them. But do you think, like, do you think Mike Pence will be up on stage by himself? Or do you think they'll just cancel the whole thing? Dan, it's Tim Kaine. It's a senator from Virginia. Oh, yeah, yeah. What about him? Dan, that's a running mate. It was announced, like, in June. What? That that can't be right. I think they would have made a big deal about it and, like, done an announcement and he'd be around and stuff. Dan, they, they did. Dan, he gave a whole, he gave a speech at the convention. He's been, he's been around. Really? I, I swear I never see the guy. 
Maybe they got a new guy. No, no, no. That's not how it works. Once they got a guy, they got to stick to the guy. Oh, yeah? Says who? Ooh, 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 oh. Give me some options here. Oh, oh. I think that should do. I hope. All right, guys. Good luck. Ghost out.